0: This podcast delivered by Australia Post. Whatever you're sending, they make it easy to pay and print your shipping labels from anywhere. And if you're in a metro area, they can come and pick up your parcels with My Post Business. Find out more and go to ozpostcomau slash podcast. Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. Now, time for the
1: show.
2: Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan. I'm here as always with David Scott, fresh for the uh, new financial year. How are you
0: doing, Dave? I wouldn't call myself fresh, Paul, but uh, I'm feeling okay and uh, glad to be back.
2: Uh, our guests this week—we're uh, honoured uh, on the show um, to have uh, one of the finest political thinkers uh, in in the country on the show, um, and also a trained economist. Um, it's Mark. Texter. A long
1: time ago, Paul. But uh, thank you. <laughs> Pleasure to be here.
2: That's right. Um, do, do you prefer uh, the politics to the to the economics, or? Well, I
1: was uh, I was at the ABS for a year and a half, and uh, I wasn't very good at it. So I'm glad to be gone. Yeah, very good. <laughs> um,
2: but uh, Mark has a, a, a very. Fun economic mind, um, but also uh, he's well known for uh, his political skills, uh, his understanding of voters uh, and his understanding of the issues affecting the country. Um, The reason we've got Mark on is that we have seen in the last year um, pretty enormous political upheaval around the world in the last 12 months uh, in multiple uh, countries. Um, It really has been a a remarkable uh, year, Mark, hasn't it? And you've just come back from the UK uh, where you were working with the Conservatives.
1: Yes, I have. and there doesn't seem to be, you know, a rule, because if you recall, if we had a, this conversation in, in Australia a year ago, we would have been talking about the worldwide decline in, you know, major political party support. But of course, in, in the UK, there was a, a near record high vote for the combined two major parties. So the new rule is there are no new rules.
2: Right. Um, David, I know over the years that we've known each other, uh, I've known you from time to time to expe- express a bit of frustration uh, with the level to which politicians often seem to assume that they have
0: control and influence
2: over the economy. Um, maybe you can expand on that for a little bit.
0: Hmm. How can I say this without having an explicit, explicit uh, warning in the other podcast? It's a good question. Um, look, my, my perspective from a markets background is that uh, over the years, I've found that uh, the hard decisions are avoided by many politicians now, so they go and push the hard decisions away, which means that nothing really changes. And then when things actually start to be pushed forward that are going to be changing, actually have ramifications, we're in a political process now where things actually get voted, voted down. So once again, nothing really changes. So you have this kind of myopic, uh, you know, nothing really changes so uh, it makes it difficult to go and get excited about it and certainly it doesn't capture the imagination of financial markets, they've just come to expect that nothing really changes I spoke to uh,
2: somebody recently uh, who told me a story about um, they worked for the Gillard government um, uh, and they were quite senior staffer uh, and they talked about the day that um, Gillard was rolled by Rudd in Canberra and about how um, this is a uh, secondhand information now, but how this person went through that day, um, questioning, you know, whether the sun would come up the next day um, after Gillard lost um, the, the the ballot, um, and she was working at um, a financial institution. Uh, subsequently, when Turnbull rolled Abbott, and she could not believe that all of that stuff was playing out on the TVs in front of them. Um, and nobody on the floor was paying attention. Everybody was just getting on with their days. It was just a few people, a few political um, uh, hard nuts uh, who were really following the blow-by-blow stuff. Um, I think one of the things that's been very interesting um, to me over the last week or two, uh, and Mark, this is one of the things that I'm uh, really interested to get your perspective on, um, in Australia, we've come back to this um, sort of factional leadership tension conversation um, in the Liberal Party. Uh, and there's a lot of journalists, a lot of stories being written, a lot of coverage um, uh, has – has um, you, you can't escape it if you're if you're following the news very closely. Yeah. But speaking to a couple of editors, they've shared the same sort of experience that we've seen on Business Insider. People are not really engaged with this. People actually don't really care very much for it. Um, and it goes back to that Labor staffer who was watching a Liberal spill and nobody's watching it around them. Now this conversation is starting up again and nobody's really paying attention. Um, Tex, what do you think is happening?
1: Well, you've, I think you've got to go back to the fundamental question is why <clears throat> why do you need good politics? And um, when you when you look at the great reform era, or at least – what people look historically back to the great reform eras of the Hawke-Keating government, the early Howard government. The reason you need good politics is that it builds capital and credibility for people to reform. So, you know, you could argue that the uh, political nous of uh, Bob Hawke allowed Keating to do the great reforms he did, uh, both in terms of you know deregulation of the banking industry and so on. And similarly with Howard uh, and Costello, the political skills of Howard, whatever you th- think of the, wa- the way he handled immigration or Tampa, his political skill allowed coverage for great reform to occur. So we are now living in an era, of course, where you could imagine us as Italy, where people think that. You know society can live independently of politics, and that's certainly true uh, but my view of the world is you actually need a very strong political system with strong pol- politicians in order to build capital uh, to then reform, and that reform then has a payback and I remember meeting Paul Keating at an airport once and he said, well, this is the, the great equation in politics. I was a skilled enough politician to do the things I needed to do, which then returned me the political capital long term in terms of the, you know, the state of the economy in order to politically survive and then do more. So somewhere there, the nexus between good politics and good policy has broken down. And that's probably because of the instantaneous nature of politics and political feedback thanks to new media.
2: So uh, you think over the last decade um, or so that the, you know, this incredibly fast news cycle now that we have uh, very... Well, uh, okay, san-
1: governments, Paul, governments age more quickly, you know. Um, I, a politician uh, 10 years ago who lasted 10 years would be like lasting 30 years now. Um, the cycle is so much quicker it's harder for people to sustain that capital. And it's more easy for them to be exposed politically. So that's why long election campaigns are a very bad thing because effectively... Because of the speed of the media, they're, they're effectively twice as long as they used to be before.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like a, ge- a general relativity at work uh, yeah, um, in, the political, in the political world. And one of the things that has been interesting, and to your point, David, about occasionally, you know, it can seem like politics can't really do much to reform things. Um, we have seen an event in the last uh, year, which is the election of Donald Trump, where there was a very clear... Uh, demonstration that it can affect markets, um, strong and fairly radical policies mm. um, do have the capability to, to move the dial uh, in a pretty significant way. So if we look at it, in markets and economics, everybody sort of talked about the start of this year, the Trump, what they call the reflation trade, um, this signal that, um, you know, the US economy was going to be um, stimulated by a whole lot of new, infrastructure spending, that there would be significant uh, corporate tax cuts, which would lead to uh, capital inflows into the country, possibly more investment uh, as a result of that. Uh, now, that has started to unwind a little bit. Uh, in fact, we're kind of almost back to where we were. Um, All except for the stock market. Yes, of course, which uh, appears to just have no uh, end to the, to the staircase that it's climbing. Uh, but, um, but we have seen with Trump that it can actually happen. Politics and policy can really make a difference. So um, in talking to people, Mark, about – so one of your things, I suppose, um, uh, what you do at your firm is just try to understand how people are thinking and how the community is thinking. What's been interesting has been radical politics and policy coming from both sides, both left and right. Um, What is it that people are latching on to, do you think, uh, in these politicians?
1: Well, when you – I mean, I go back to the, my, my point uh, a few minutes ago, which was you look at Macron in France. He's now talking about some very significant political reforms in terms of the size of the French parliament. Now, you've got to ask yourself why is he able to do that because he's got the political capital to do so. But whether you're talking about markets or whether you're talking about politics, I think the, the the thing that's perhaps in deficit is what I call the hope horizon. So, if you look at you know some of the success of Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, uh, whether it be those people in the north on relatively low income struggle street, if you like, or um, you, know, uh, you know young voters who don't see you know, a job forthcoming from the economy, a, a an economy that offers no hope in terms of either uh, an improvement in your circumstances in terms of your career path or an improvement in your possible, you know, wage, you know, some hope for wage increase or a job if you're young. The The big thing that's missing, and I think what the success of initially of Trump in terms of improving the market was, was a hope horizon. And the thing I've noticed most in terms of those markets where both there's a challenge in the, in the, in the financial markets and a challenge in the, in the political market is a lack of a hope horizon. So I want to know that my wage will increase. I want to know that I have prospects for a career improvement. Or if I'm a, a young uh, person entering the workforce, I want to know that there's a job available and where there's not that hope horizon, uh, generally you get a failure in the political and the and the financial markets. Um, so just
0: just going through the motions essentially.
1: yeah, and you know it's it's what you don't want in politics or in the market is you know the equivalent of a national dead-end job where even though you your job might be safe or your financial circumstances might be stable, if there's not hope of a better future generally that's when you get a challenged market or political environment because at the end of the day, the the thing that both economics and politics has taught me is that our society, our exchange system, our monetary system is built on trust and hope.
0: Mm.
2: Mm. Because um, there is this reality now for anybody, I think, who's in their 20s, say. Um, and they may be uh, working in a job where they see some kind of maybe promotion ahead of them but um, I wrote Uh, earlier this week that it looks increasingly like by the time you're ready to do a certain kind of job in, say, 15 years that exists now, it is increasingly likely that that job will not exist or will have changed very, very dramatically. So um, you think about what a CEO's job will look like in 10 years' time, I guarantee you, of a listed company, you're going to need a very different skill set.
1: So what did Napoleon said, uh, Napoleon said that a leader is a dealer in hope. So what have you got to deal with? Uh, Unless those on the enterprise side of politics, let's call it centre-right, can come up with a new set of innovative policies and ideas to re-establish hope in traditional economic markets, then I think it's very bad for the right side of politics.
2: Part of what the the right has been saying and the coalition has been saying was, look, we'll grow the economy. Is that not enough?
1: Well, you can't, have, you can't not have growth. I mean, that's a very bad thing indeed. Um, the thing I've noticed, particularly from uh, right around the world, the, the, the centre-right part of politics is there really hasn't been that adjustment in the policy setting. So um, at the end of the day, if you're a, uh, you know, a commercial marketer or a political marketer, you have to have new ideas to sell. There has to be an evolution in, in, in what you sell. And one of the things I've noticed, particularly in the center-right part of politics, is that the new ideas about what the new economy looks like, um, uh, and policies that would demonstrate to people that there is, you know, some hope in wages growth, that there is a dividend in productivity to people rather than companies, that is probably a bit of a policy deficit at the moment because essentially there's too many right-wing think tanks that are, in a way, uh, just re-prosecuting fight back from the the early 90s.
2: But isn't that one of the things about the conservative movement, though, that it looks to history to navigate current issues using the waypoints and the, 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 the lessons that history and a, a certain set of core values around um, community, um, the, the family, um, and then when you get to the government side, uh, smaller government, lower taxes, that that basically um, should be the uh, very small sort of manual for navigating um, any any issue that you're looking for. But why is that not sufficient these days?
1: Well, I still think there's enormous economic and political rent in making sure that government is operating efficiently. Um, I'm absolutely sure that there are, and I know for a fact there are area, areas of government that can be better provided by you know, smart, innovative companies who can do the job better and at less cost. Uh, that's not really what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is um, the challenge for centre-right political parties to capture the innovation that's there in the tech world, in the financial world, and, and, and use those resources to come up with a, a refreshed set of politi- policies that prove that there is a dividend for the ordinary citizen in economic growth. And there are some very powerful sig- signals at the moment to the opposite. I mean, um, you know, the, the 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 public is very aware that there are, you know, a number of corporations that aren't either paying their fair share in terms of tax or not paying their fair share in terms of the fair distribution of dividends or uh, those sorts of things that you'd assume would be the benefit in in investing in public companies. So that's where there's some cynicism in the market. So you've got this economically centre-right group of people and even they expect more from the economic and political system that has grown up under the free market.
2: David, um, can I ask for your take on this? Because the economy has been growing very well, um, but we're seeing this issue in the low interest rate environment where you get this asset price inflation Um, and when you look at measures of inequality it's certainly not as pronounced in Australia Um, but we are starting to see this uh, issue with um, uh, increasing concentration of wealth Um, you know if you look at Gini coefficients around the world etc how does this play out, um, do you think, from here? Because it's very hard, isn't it? If in this low interest rate environment, central banks are now starting to talk about do we start to try and normalise policy? Um, how do you think it, what happens when you play the tape forward?
0: That's a very good question and we'll find out soon enough, it looks like, going off what we've heard from some of the central banks recently. Um, yeah, look, it's, it's it's pretty simple in the fact that, you know, you've seen since we've had the uh, the GFC and we saw emergency settings introduced by central banks around the world, those who held assets then have been the chief benefactors, and you've seen that. You know, people who have owned property, people who have owned shares, uh, bonds. Everything has been rallying, which is predominantly, and this is slightly generalising, but a lot of it is the is the elderly population, people who've been established and had a career and had money to go and buy these things beforehand. And then in the year since the GFC, obviously, they've had their wealth go up astronomically. Uh, but uh, a lot of people who were younger with not that capital who didn't have those assets uh, perhaps had weaker labour market conditions than what the, uh, the generations before them, they're being left behind. I think that's probably contributed to some of what we're seeing in the political you know, moving from the, uh, you know, the, the centre parties to the fringe because people are frustrated and they're not getting what they want, particularly among the younger people. Absolutely. Taxed. Well,
1: there is a big divide. Nothing's that simple. There is, a, for example, in the UK... The biggest divide wasn't on, you know, what traditionally, uh, you know, the right and the left look at in terms of a gender divide, but there certainly was an enormous generational divide in voting patterns in the UK. Notwithstanding that, uh, the fringe parties didn't do so well because, as I said, the, you know, the, the 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 two party vote effectively was one of the highest ever, and you had people making a deliberate choice. The young said, maybe we need a bit of social insurance through, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's, um, you know, left of centre manifesto and, 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 the, and, and, and the more well-established um, in society, those who are a bit older, said, no, I want to protect my assets from somebody who could wreck the economy. So you are getting a divide, perhaps more on a generational basis. And so I agree entirely on that basis.
2: One of the issues we see is this low wages growth, okay, um, that appears to be across the economy. This appears to be a global structural issue with, with low, when it comes to low wages growth. The uh, US economy, I think we've mentioned a couple of times on this podcast before, uh, is approaching what appears to be something like full employment, um, low 4% uh, unemployment rate, and they're still not seeing any wages growth, which is amazing. Because uh, in Australia, we would sort of generally think that, I think the RBA has previously put the rate at which you'd expect to see strong wages growth starting to come through at 5%. Uh, which we're currently 5.5% uh, unemployment, so we're not that far off. Um, the labour market starting to look quite tight, in what was the old paradigm, but there appears to be this global structural issue um, for people, which is that wages just do not seem to be flowing yeah. through, even when incomes are growing. Um, for um, companies, company profits have been very strong um, over the last uh, year here in Australia, um, and um, Companies in the United States have been uh, have been doing uh, uh, pretty well too. Um, and that's well, when you get a,
1: a you know when you get a a member of the Reserve Bank talking about distributional effects uh, as he did recently, that's a pretty significant thing. And this is the the pregnant issue out there. It, uh, you know, it's still gestating. But the the whole issue of the benefits of either growth or a strong economy or wages is really the new politics. That is, uh, uh, and the gap for me there is a a new set of politics and policies that deal with this, that take this issue head on, that don't pretend that this distributional problem isn't happening, but saying, look, this is how we deal with it better. Uh, This is how we, through productivity increases, offer that hope horizon for wage earners, This is how we offer some hope for youth workers in terms of a a potential job that is not replaced by technology, Mm. and the offering of hope, I think, is the new is the new politics. That is, you know, the old measures of full employment of a tight, you know, what we call a tight labor market, which we think is a good thing, but essentially people always ask themselves one thing, which is, how do I benefit? And that's the politics now that is less clear, less clear than ever. Yeah. I would say, in my thirty-year experience.
2: But I must say, though, what you, some of those measures that you're talking about, like protections for workers, um, people being able to get pay rises, um, distributional um, policies, so you know, making sure that um, both, you know, that, that basically people who are on the margins are taken mm-hmm. care of, uh, it sounds like a pretty good um, place for the Labor Party to be running from.
1: Well, not necessarily. I mean, it, 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 it it's, it's, you know, depends on who innovates um, and who asks questions of major corporations. I mean, when major blue chip stock are uh, out there in the marketplace where people are used to some sort of dividend stream in terms of frank dividends and they're not getting it, people are now asking them, how do I unlock that, that value? And maybe there's a, a group of people in the hierarchy of major corporations that aren't structuring, you know, the company that I've invested in, in the right way that deliver me some value. So whether it be from government pool or whether it be from, you know, the old blue chip stock or any sort of stock or any sort of investment, um, people are saying, well, you know, um, your company's paper wealth isn't good enough anymore. You're there to deliver me some benefits in terms of dividends or capital growth and, I'm not getting it.
2: um, Can I ask you specifically about the current landscape in Australia? So um, we've had this increasing fall in the – this is going back um, I think a couple of decades now – but the fall in primary vote for the established parties. Um, So highest vote ever yet again in the last election for um, minor parties and independents. We've got One Nation uh, is back uh, and it's doing okay um, in Queensland particularly, doing all right in WA, maybe a little bit underwhelming in the state election there. Um, Nick Xenophon um, doing pretty well uh, in, in South Australia particularly, um, but also you, you now have um, the Australian Conservatives under under Corey Bernardi, which um, they're filching uh, MPs from, um, from the coalition side, um, but also recruiting a lot of grassroots members. Um, what do you see when you look at the current landscape here now for the domestic parties?
1: Well, typically, uh, you know, when Howard went through... For example, when Howard went through this period in after 96 where Hanson major, made major inroads into the traditional party vote, uh, the response was effectively... And, and, and whilst the GST proved a very difficult issue to sell, essentially it redivided opinion based on, you know, uh, based on the economy. So what it did is it made it more black and white in terms of, you know, Labor versus uh, uh, Liberal and National Party. So we get back to the original story. You know, there needs to be a stronger economic story um, because if your traditional strength is the economy, uh, what I see is a, a, a higher than normal third party vote. And look... Palmer got an enormous vote at one stage as well and he fell away. And the reason that he fell away was a lack of credibility, particularly on the economy and getting things through. Mm. So the real challenge here is to have a coherent economic narrative Mm. uh, that um, re-divides opinion based on traditional party lines. Um, So if if you want to do that, you've got to return to your traditional strength and that is a strong economy that benefits people. And that's the big policy challenge over the next two years for the Liberal Party. The the social agenda is the social agenda, but ultimately um, governments are there to protect the nation, which is pretty basic, police and defence, but they are there essentially in voters' minds to make their lives better off uh, in their hip pocket, and in the economy, in terms of delivering them jobs and economic certainty, that is the big challenge. Can, um, uh, the rest is really a reflection of an absence of that, and then a vacuum gets filled with all this other chuff.
2: But wasn't there this issue though? Um, Turnbull's original platform was about you know uh, unlocking creativity, doing this um, the the innovation um, piece, um, which um, you know with the glorious benefit of hindsight that came. Um, after the election and we got the the, the final results, uh, there was this widespread uh, uh, take or interpretation, which I will point out nobody was talking about in the run-up to the election, yeah. um, but it was that, well, though people don't want to be um, innovative um, they, because they hear disruption and innovation yeah. and they think part of what we were t- touching on earlier, which is that people feeling like their job is insecure, that their future is cloudy and uncertain. Yeah. Um, so
1: can you talk about well, that? Like, Well, I what... think that there's two things there. there. There is always, Paul, two things going on in government. There's a government agenda and there's a political agenda. There, there certainly was for a period of time what was largely a departmental, ministerial-led push on this innovation stuff. Um, and that change in the election to a much more fundamental message about jobs and growth and encouraging small business and through small business um, jobs growth which is still the major engine in small business so uh, you know in retrospect there was perhaps too much of an emphasis in terms of a, a bureaucratic governmental push on innovation and yes it is very disruptive but ultimately you know, beyond that period, we are going to have to deal uh, in a way that's not some departmentally bizarre, you know, uh, you know, uh, sort of thought bubble about innovation nation and all this sort of stuff, which was certainly not the political class's idea. But there is going to have to be the development of a set of center right policies that deal with an actual dividend from a changing nature of the economy because we can all talk about efficiencies we can all talk about the changing nature of the economy but the people with an actual vote whether they be youth voters or senior voters want a dividend youth voters want a dividend in terms of a job and a career and older voters want a dividend well in terms of a dividend uh from (laughs) major corporations that are supposed to be using economic growth and You know the big question for me, having seen the changing nature of the policy agenda over thirty years as a pollster, is that policy innovation, um, and I don't mean any on any particular side of politics, but in terms of the think tanks you see, in terms of you know the nature of the bait out of universities, you're not seeing that anymore. You're not seeing that truly innovative policy. That does two things not only recognises that the nature of the economy is changing, we 've got startups and tech companies, but what is the human dividend in that, and how do we ensure that we maximize the human dividend of this change? Now, for me, based on what i 've seen over a very long time, even though i 'm still quite young, young I'm not seeing that anymore. I'm not seeing that truly innovative set of ideas either out of the business community or academia or out of the think tanks. That's what's changed for me the most.
2: Which is a really interesting take because when I look at the composition of the economy and where the future growth is going to come from, it really does need to come from uh, creating New types of industries and new types of jobs. So, fundamentally, when you look at how do you, well, so, sure, we've got a, an infrastructure program and that'll create jobs for construction workers um, after the construction, um, mm. uh, this construction boom that we're going through in the major cities on the East Coast comes off a bit. So, there'll be an infrastructure program there to catch those guys. That will be done in five to 10 years. Um, so and you just can't keep building more roads, um, you know, um, you have to – and government can't continue to fund um, uh, the the creation of industry and, uh, you know, government programs, whether it's in partnership with the private sector, et cetera, um, but um, that can't – that isn't a sustainable way. Um, to, to run the country. So what do you do? You have to create new industries. We have to have products in the country that people want to buy, um, whether that's a tourism product or education product. But then the, uh, what if we get a terms of trade shock, the price of our tourism and education goes through the roof, um, and uh, or there's some kind of other issue which um, cools demand for those sectors. What if we got left in the country that we're going to be able to keep people in jobs. It's a very interesting question, and I do think that that's why the courage around being able to support the creation of new industry, uh, when people talk about innovation and disruption and attracting seed capital and venture uh, capital and private equity funding of uh, small businesses, um, people taking risks, essentially, um, that is absolutely necessary. Um, but uh, it, I think at the same time, as we've seen, this whole talk of innovation—the the issues that we've had before in the last previous election under, under Turnbull—that it doesn't necessarily make well, people again, I, terribly excited. Well, again, I think excited. yeah, they,
1: they don't confuse you know a departmental advertising campaign with a political message, and the two were different. Uh, I think the departmental campaign about Innovation Nation was was meaningless to people. Uh, but I do agree that one of the things you have to do is to demonstrate that when people talk about, uh, you know, new tech startups starting up, it's not just one or two guys sitting around the room. I was up at a at a mate's business in Barangaroo yesterday, and there was fifty or sixty young people sitting around doing some really interesting work. Now, mm. um, you know, and 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 in the floor down below there was a, a company doing you know, computer graphics for games and films. And, you know, that was tremendously exciting. As it wasn't one or two people creating one or two jobs. There were 50 or 60 people in the room. And that really hasn't been retailed yet. You know, there there is no uh, public education campaign going into that room and saying, look, these are real people who have just come out of university doing real things. In the agriculture sector, there's some tra- fantastic Tech startups, you know, enhancing uh, what we do with with uh, you know organic farming, uh, uh, with with hydroponics, uh, with with the, the changing nature of, of chemicals in farm use. They're start startups too, and they're employing real young scientists. So one of the things that's not happening is that you know the, the some in the political class are talking about the theory of innovation. Um, but not demonstrating to people, and again, I use the word hope, demonstrating the hope in that in that there are real kids being employed right now out of university and out of tech schools, and sometimes who've got good
2: jobs and have a bright future
1: who have a good job, good job, have a bright future, and are doing great things and yesterday i i uh, I caught up over dinner with a with a with a with a farmer from grenfell and um, and he's in his sixties and all the farms around him have been taken over by large agricultural combines, and you know I thought he was about to go into a treatise about how you know terrible this was and everything else, but then again he said, well you know the, these group of people are funding this new school near us that my two twin my my two daughters are going to to learn about farm practices and productivity on the land, and so there are lots of really good stories out there that. frankly, only people like us in in tech and the media know about. And it's very important we tell these stories because, again, I think that, that the scariest thing to me is when there is no hope in the economy or in the political system, that's when you get bad decisions being made and negative politics coming in. And so the biggest deficit right now, bigger than the trade deficit, bigger than the uh, you know, the, 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 the balance of payments deficit is the hope deficit yeah. because, to me, the first thing I learnt in economics at ANU was, you know, that economics is basically expectations-led. Whether it be the promissory note, you know, that you that this $5 note promised you a piece of wealth or the promise of a deal being honoured, our economy is built on hope. And when that is damaged, I think you know that is the probably the most you know the the, the the most challenging thing. You've got you've got a hope deficit. People start feeling. Um, people start acting in what economists might call a deflationary way. And then you've got the downward spiral.
2: We're, we're going to wrap up. So I just want to ask you one last question on this. Is there a danger uh, with all of this, even if there was some policy innovation or stories that um, maybe the community, community could find themselves getting behind and you know rallying around uh, um, you know, a, a major party? Um, is there a danger that people have already tuned out?
1: Human nature dictates you will always listen to a sa- salient message. So I think it's a very easy thing to say they're tuning out so yes, at any one time, they'll tune out. We all tune out. We tune out sometimes for our kids from the TV, uh, from our loved ones, from our husbands or wives. But when something truly matters, you don't. And so if you have a salient message uh, and you are consistent in the delivery of that, people will never ultimately tune out. Um, I, I just think that's a that's a lazy excuse. The, the, the challenge in getting people to tune in, I think is a bit... I'm going to use that terrible word again, but we do need to be a little bit more forward-thinking in the way we adjust on the enterprise side of politics. We explain that there are dividends, literally and figuratively, in a growing economy. Uh, Those over 65 have to feel that they're getting a fair distribution of dividends from big companies like you know, BHP and others, Uh, and the young have to believe that there's actual true dividend in, you know, technological development and even the organic technological development of traditional industries like agriculture, mining and other things. And that is the big challenge for the economic and political system is to offer that hope. If there is no hope, um, then the system is truly challenged and under stress.
2: You've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Uh, Our guest this week has been Mark Texter, uh, a political strategist uh, and founder of Crosby Texter. Uh, uh, Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. Fascinating chat. Pleasure. Uh, And Dave, we'll be back next week.
0: We will be, and that was a great uh, great chat between you two to listen to. I wasn't, wasn't really uh, contributing much today, but uh, very fascinating indeed.
2: You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. You can catch us all on Twitter individually as well. And you can find the show on iTunes where you can rate us uh, and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time.
0: Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at ozpostcomau slash podcast. That's ozpostcomau slash podcast.